This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Unwelcome Subversions. Band or Album Remix with Jeff Tidball. Poe in the Yellow King. And TikTok Moldavite Curses. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm. So say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon, a quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh, yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, oh my goodness, look at that, Robin, such a surprise, such a shock. The Doritos are thumping and the miniatures are crunching. Why, it's as though <laughs> we've senselessly reversed something for no other reason but cheap shock value. As perhaps you can guess, uh, we're not for it. And uh, specifically, we're not for taking a uh, a setting or a genre and playing a game that is solely intended to invert it, to subvert the assumptions of the genre may be something noble to do in the world of criticism, but on the fields of narrative, not so noble. That's our thesis. Robin, talk us through this subversion of subversion. Right. Uh, and so what we're talking about is when you take a premise that is baked into a game and then sell your players on that game, possibly heavily, possibly lightly, but you know that they've had an assumption that flows from the setting. And then you turn that assumption on its head to their shock and surprise. So examples of that would be, turns out that the Ordo Veritatis, the good guy organization in the Esoterrorist, is actually bad. Oh, and, Robin, no! Oh, those, those vampires that you just went and murdered in Night's Black Agents. They were actually good. Why did you murder them? And yeah. so right. you would think that these are things that don't happen very often. But guess what? We as designers of these games often uh, hear back that this has happened. And for example, it is a common pitch. Back when Pelgrane was looking for esoterrorist adventures, about a third of them were. It turns out the Ordo Veritatis is bad. And guess what? The, the Ordo Veritatis is good for a reason that the point of that game is there's plenty of other horror and awfulness and all sorts of reasons to be terrified in the game. But, uh, and even though you're sort of essentially on the, on your own in the field, when you're out battling the, uh, esoterrorists and unwinding their conspiracies and dealing with the uh, demons from another world that they, uh, invite into our world, that 
you always know that that group has your back. And it's the idea that it somehow then becomes uh, corrupt and uh, is a, uh, they're actually the bad guys. Why is that interesting? Why is it interesting to, to subvert any of these conventions? And I would submit that unless your answer is something way better than, well, the players won't be expecting it. Well, there's all sorts of things that players won't be expecting. They uh, won't be expecting in a uh, game of uh, D&D to have gray space aliens uh, come down and uh, kidnap them and advise them to go and, and write lengthy uh, manifestos about space peace. Just because something is unexpected, it does not make it enjoyable. A surprise is, I think, vastly overrated, and a surprise that establishes your power to kind of screw over the uh, players. There's all sorts of ways that you can screw over the players. You probably shouldn't be doing anything that you're thinking of in terms of, of uh, hosing the players. And especially this, you're not going to surprise them so much as you're going to disappoint and annoy them. Yeah. And you can, I suppose, go back and forth and discuss whether or not it's a valuable thing to do in other media. For example, uh, in a spy movie, sure, the CIA guy looks like he's got your back, but it turns out he's a duplicitous weasel. Well, aside from documentary reality backing it up, <laughs> that has not been a surprise in any spy movie ever. There were probably silent spy movies where that wasn't a surprise. So your notion of we're shockingly subverting the genre is no, you're playing into yet another tired cliche of the genre. But uh, let's pretend that your good Dracula or your evil Sherlock Holmes is a cool novel. Fine. It isn't, but let's pretend. But in a game... There is an aspect, as Robin has alluded, of community expectations and community play. And it is not one person who you are talking to through the medium of a novel or a film saying, oh, here's my cool twist. It is a game in which expectations are there for a reason, in the same way that you would not play football with a hockey puck. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Sure, you're all gifted athletes. You can probably chunk a hockey puck around and have good fun with it, but it won't be the game that anyone signed up to play. And that is a bigger problem in an art form in which everybody has to cooperate to create. Similarly, you can only, you can go lots of different ways in jazz, but you can't suddenly, you know, start playing uh, metal, right? It'll, it'll mess everything up. That's not what you got together the combo for. Yes. You have to agree with the rest of your band that you're playing jazz metal. Exactly. Ahead of time. <laughs> right. Ideally. They have to also want to do it. And, and then close yourself into a van and play it there. But the collaboration is such a crucial part of role-playing that anything that harms it comes back to bite you. And this is the same reason you're, you shouldn't be an arbitrary and ridiculous GM in many, many other areas. And also, you know, obviously you shouldn't be an arbitrary and ridiculous player. You're building something together. And at some point, someone is going to say, but Shadowrun. And I would argue that in Shadowrun, being screwed over by Mr. Johnson is literally already in the expectations in the same way that going insane or finding something tempting and powerful about the Cthulhu mythos is already in the expectations for Call of Cthulhu, that you beginning, oh, you're cool cultists, that's a dumb subversion of Call of Cthulhu, but allowing players to discover midway through, oh, no, we've become the cool cultists, that is Call of Cthulhu as it is intended to be played. So... Similarly, I assume you could do a shadow run where everyone is honest and decent, but to an extent that would feel unsatisfying as well, right? Right. Absolutely. As you suggest, being hosed by the client is intrinsic to the premise of cyberpunk and to 
Shadowrun in particular. Uh, even then, though, to slightly digress, uh, <laughs> it is, I think, the equivalent of in, in Call of Cthulhu. At the end, you disrupt a ritual to summon Cthulhu, right? Yeah. It's like, yes, it is, in fact, part of the player expectation. And anybody who, uh, you know, gets upset about that hasn't been informed about Shadowrun. And you should have informed them about Shadowrun because you're cheating the one player at the table who doesn't understand the premise. Mm-hmm. So, so even there, I, I guess the broader answer is that make your players aware of a premise, don't yank the premise out from under them. And when you've got something where the premise is tired, as in you are betrayed by your client in Shadowrun, your trick then is to subvert expectations by having something else happen that makes that interesting, whether it's like, yes, of course, you know, ahead of time, that the client is going to betray you. You've been told by the other client who you're, and you're also trying to betray them, right? That you have to add another level of that. Once you've done it once, you need to, to vary it up. But a surprise that is just a thing that comes out of nowhere and makes you look stupid and puts you in a bad situation. If you think for a moment about anything other than sort of power tripping the players, that's not an innovative, surprising choice. There's a reason they're not expecting it. And that's because the thing they're not expecting is stupid and annoying. Yeah. And this is not to say that you could not, in theory, get everyone together and agree, we're going to play a Knights Black Agents game in which there are good vampires. And then everyone moves in with that in their expectations handle. And uh, they have to do more figuring out if this is a good vampire or an evil vampire before they kill them. Likewise, one assumes you could say we're going to play a game of Esoteris that is so cosmically horrible that even the Ordo has been corrupted and you're, you know, the last station team to uh, hold true to the to the order and you have to stop the wave of Esoteris, you know, thundering around the world. One could argue that that might be a, a fun concept for a group of players to agree on ahead of time, but for players to come in and think what they're playing is super cool ontological X-Files and to be met instead with nest of snakes. That's, that's uncool. That is, you know, uh, we're going to play football with a hockey puck, literally. Right. So we're not saying that the subversion is unclever, although it is, we're saying that it is unfair, which it always is. Right. And even when it is fair, you should ask yourself whether it is interesting yeah. and also ask yourself what other knock-on effects that that change is going to have. So when things are placed in a setting, they are done, uh, created by the setting designer to have a particular emotional effect. And there are other assumptions in the world and the game that will uh, depend on that. And so the overall message of Knight's Black Agents running all through it is that vampires are bad. Yeah. And if you decide that, but some are good, then you have to look at all of the other assumptions that are in the game. And it might, there are other little details of the uh, setting that might surprise you. And there may be functional game reasons for a setting component to be there. And if you pull it out, you may surprise yourself unpleasantly when you discover that, oh, if I have good vampires in the, in this universe, that slows down every single scenario because now there has to be an elaborate investigation among other things, not only the shape of the conspiracy and what the vampires are up to, but we have to check ahead of time whether every single vampire is good. And guess what? We've just added half again, the length through every scenario we run or the idea that, you know, the Ordo is there to help 
is there to create an, an emotional moment of Cersei's. And even though you all sort of agree ahead of time that it'd be cool to do an even darker version of the Ezoterras by session four, you might be going, um, could they be good again? <laughs> I didn't yeah. quite think how, uh, and also, oh, this scenario assumes that you can then midway through contact the uh, Ordo Veritatis and they will help you with this equipment. And now, oh, but wait a minute, in my series, you can't trust them. Oh, I guess this published scenario, I got to do some quick thinking on my feet. So there may be other elements of the world and the game value that you also knock out in order to create what you think is a interesting surprise. Uh, but one thing that is never a surprise in this here podcast is that we have exciting, beautiful, finely honed commercials. And then on the other side of those commercials, you will find other segments. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters-icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21, that's CROWN21, to save... 15%. At PelgrainPress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. It's time once more for that time in the program when Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And today I, Ken, am talking not just to someone else, but in many ways to the one else, Jeff Tidball, the Atlas holding up Atlas Games in a mixed metaphor that possibly has not occurred to him yet. Although I wouldn't put it past him. Jeff, I don't remember. Have you been on the show before? Or have you merely been a silent, beautiful presence in our dreams and hearts? I think that I have been a conventions show guest before at some Gen Con or another uh, where there was jackhammering. I do remember jackhammer Gen Con, and I'm sure our longtime listeners are even now casting their minds back and thinking, oh, jackhammering. Today we're going to listen to you in just spect, I guess, not even retrospect. Because last time we did not talk about a thesis that you came up with, possibly under impulsion from someone connected to this very program. The thesis that every every creative professional is part Ernie and part Bert. And that's a thesis that you have um, spoken on at elevated gatherings of the Cognoscenti and in bars. But I repeat myself. It seems like it is very easy to identify which one of those two poles I most occupy by virtue of the fact that I have spoken about it in public. It does seem that the act of classifying is itself a Bert act. I, I like to embrace my Bert. What can I say? I mean, but that's that's the question, right? Because as a definite Ernie, as a beloved creative mind and hopeless organizer of things, we depend on Berts. We we may not think we depend on Berts, but without Berts, everything would just be a pile of nonsense and nothing would ever get done. Robin, of course, is the, the Arhat who blends Ernie and Bert in perfection. But uh, as a 
as as a pure Bert, uh, where does your or not pure Bert, but a mostly Bert? How does your creative energy express itself, and what advice do you have for those of us well on the Ernie side of the of the chasm? And I love how this is such a great analogy. We don't even have to explain it. We're just launching right in. That's exactly right. It's self evident. I have actually started putting into my like Kickstarter bios just expressing that I am 85% Bert and 15% Ernie. My question about this is whether for those of you who are Ernies, is it just frustrating and horrible to work with Berts in the moment, but you understand that it's necessary in the same way that consuming some certain amount of vitamins is required in order to, you know, live? I, I mean, because I, I think I probably Bert mostly out of fear. So like in the same way that your lease contract, if you rent an apartment, every everything in that lease contract is because one specific thing went wrong that one time. You can't have a waterbed because that went wrong that one time. You can't have a fish tank because that went wrong that one time. You can't hide a bag full of diamonds in the garbage disposal because that went wrong that one time. And so by the same token, I feel like a lot of my Burt habits revolve around, well, here's a thing that made the book late one time. We got to have a system to prevent that. Here's a the thing that caused an editor to explode that one time. We can't write any of those things again. We can't have that person exploding. So I worry that it's, or I don't know if I worry, I think probably birding arises from fear. I mean, it, certainly knowing that and taking Pains is almost the definition of Bert. I, I think for me, it depends on the Bert, right? You compared it to vitamins. Uh, you can take vitamins in a delicious way. You can get your vitamin A in, in delicious spinach or in, you know, terrible kale, right? It's, it's still vitamin A. It, it just depends on how you got it. Was it, was it a bitter Swiss chard of a Bert or a delicious roasted Brussels sprout of a Bert that you got your vitamin A from? So I feel like I love working with a good Bert because I don't have to have the fear then. I can, I can revel in the creative process and do my part and throw stuff at the wall and know that if it will, in fact, get the diamonds into the garbage disposal. And by the way, kids, this is why we know that Jeff has rented apartments in St. Paul, Minnesota. I know that it's going to be caught or, or knocked down or turned somehow into a beautiful diamond bracelet around the, the sink faucet the way that it, it should have been. Right. I mean, that, that knowledge that you're working with part of a professional team. You know, even, you know, Michael Jordan didn't not want the rest of the Bulls out there. And on most days, he probably even didn't mind that Jerry Krause was selling tickets. And of course, just as a bad Burt or an angry Burt can make life miserable, an awful Ernie can make life miserable. Someone who is, you know, prima donna-ish or operatic or in whatever way a disaster, regardless of the quality of their actual work. That's just, to my mind, the nature of partnerships and doing something, you know, as part of a team. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. So are the uh, the Swiss chard Burt's like rude and horrible to work with on the basis of their interpersonal skills? Or are they worried about stupid things, even things that would be stupid to a Burt? Like how how do you sort good Burt's from bad Burt's? Is that just interpersonal skills? I mean, I think interpersonal skills is 90% of it. I think that if you have, you know, an annoying tendency as a Bert, you know, you're over concerned about, you know, some aspect of the process, you can usually work around that. And if the, if the Bert has good interpersonal skills, they'll understand that that's a, an area where they need to, you know, uh, wire around. I think as in most things in life, good interpersonal skills will do about 90% of your job for you. And I think that's absolutely true for Ernie's. I think that the, the quality of being creative has 
quite far too often. I mean, well, for every nagging, niggling, ridiculous, cartoonish Bert, there is a Byronic, self-destructive user of an Ernie, right? I mean, the awful artists, that's a, that's a stereotype for the same reason that pinheaded managers are a stereotype, right? Do you think that either Bert skills or Ernie skills are more transferable one or the other? Like for folks who are listening who are not involved in game creation or design, are, are Bert's or Ernie's more or less likely to be able to slide into other areas of creative endeavor? I think it depends. I, I think creative talent is different than creative temperament. I mean, I know that your writing is is perfectly good and in, in many cases joyous. If you wanted to write and create, I I would actually, you know, kind of enjoy to see what the 15% of, of Jeff's Ernie makes. But, you know, it's it's a talent. It's a it's it's a it's a skill. There's a degree of of gift to it. And certainly, you know, there's, I'm, I'm sure that out there somewhere in the world of you too can be an artist. There is some, you know, meditational technique or, or writing exercise that can turn a mediocre stilted writer into a half decent writer, but can they ever be a truly Ernie? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, Ernie's sort of, if they pay taxes, have to be Bert's at least one day a year. The more Bert-like I have become over time, and a lot of that has looked like getting involved in like the marketing process of game publishing or the sales process of game publishing, all of those things have kind of given me more information about what makes a product exciting to a retail store owner. What is it about something that makes them think that they can sell it or makes them think that their community will be excited about it or what is it about oh, the way a game is packaged that will make it slide through distribution or sales channels there's a lot of creativity in that process of taking the the raw creative stuff of a game and kind of transforming that into a uh, product that is useful and interesting like to the marketplace and i i hate to a certain extent i hate using words like product and marketplace when what we are actually talking about are games and gamers i guess be that as it may that that 15% i often use not to write a game but to imagine the way that a game that someone else has got in mind can be successfully turned into a game that a gamer wants to have as opposed to an interesting idea that even if published would come in the wrong package or would not uh, be learned about by the people who can sell it or or something like that. So I think I think that there is interesting creative stuff in the Burt adjacent ugly wheels of commerce. I mean, there's a lot of different directions we could go from there, but let me talk about Burt knowledge making a game interesting to the market. Give, give us some examples because, of course, the Ernie answer is put pulp in it or uh, let's have a Zeppelin or whatever. Some ridiculous thing that provably doesn't work what what are what's the Bert way of taking a game concept or a what sorts of things should the Ernie's or uh, designers or writers out there take away from your hard-earned Bertness in terms of making the game palatable to the market I mean there's a lot of stuff that is 
I guess, the, the first order stuff that you would think of. And so that is not all that interesting. And so we'll move on from it quick is just like, how much should it cost? Is it similar to other games of its nature in the marketplace? Does it come in a package that is not like deeply confusing? You can create a game in the form of a taco and then it is shelved with the tacos instead of the games. And so nobody knows what's happening and nobody buys it. Remind me when we first talked about Bander Album. This was at a Gen Con SoCal. So that would be in the two, early 2000s, right? The, you know, 2002, 2003, something like that. Yeah, so this is a essentially a social amusement with no, originally no further point past social amusement. But for whatever reason, that social amusement like completely captivated my idea because I think it's fun to get involved with language and I think it's fun to talk about stuff. And I think that those conventions of the way pop culture manipulates speech. I think that that's all very fascinating, but it's not clear at all that that's a product that someone can buy. And and I think when we when we did launch Bander album, there was a lot of people that were saying this is a product you can buy now. And so it took. Uh, I think it probably took six or seven years of back of my mind Bert noodling about it to figure out how does that become. An object because those Gen Con SoCal's were prior to Kickstarter, so it's not clear how you raise capital to get that. Even if you can figure out how it's a product, it's not a book, right? This is a essentially a game that you describe in five or six sentences. It's not that you can't put it in a box, really. But just being aware of what's going on in the marketplace meant that when Kickstarter shows up, there is a way to effectively reach out to a bunch of people who might really like the idea and think that it is as magnificent as I did. And also, I give a lot of credit to places like the folks out at Campaign Coins who started making really cool accessory objects. I give the (laughs) Campaign Coins people a lot of credit for starting to make awesome stuff that gamers wanted to have. And so when those ideas eventually kind of came around and came together, I guess it was the Burt nature of just being aware of what's happening in the marketplace that made those things all kind of fall together and make it possible to make band or album a physical object that gamers who were particularly excited about the magnificence of this little social game and let them buy something to A, express that love, but B, then share it with other people that are nearby them and use that as the thing that they can hang that gameplay on as opposed to in in the middle of a conversation having to interrupt everybody and explain the rules of how to talk. That's obnoxious. That's not a game. So so it was the the form factor, really, that you birded on, that you realized if you have a, a coin that you can flip to one side band, other side album... And then the natural way of, of producing and, and wrapping that coin to give you the five sentences, as you said, is liner notes. And that's, that, that became the form factor that made Bander Album the modest Kickstarter success that it became. As with all creative enterprises, things keep going on. Uh, so you are launching Bander Album Remix. That's the plan. Um, I, I suspect that plenty of people would rightly wonder why on the earth it would be necessary to do more band or album stuff. But I discovered that the fundamental point of doing a Kickstarter in the first place was so that I could stop thinking about it. And it didn't work. <laughs> 
Well, that, I guess, is my fault for coming up with such a brilliant concept as Bander Album. My apologies. I'll try not to do it again. Again, if you look at the Campaign Coin stuff, you see that they keep releasing magnificent stuff year after year, and gamers continue to love it. Like, all of these accessories continue to be compelling and continue to be really interesting things. So I'm actually really excited. The new design Cisco Garrido has done for this coin looks really, really great. Um, he went and did a bunch of research on the the kind of graphic design patterns that appear in actual currency and brought a lot of that to bear in this new coin. So I think it turns out even more than I might have suspected that there's sort of like more quote unquote work to be done. This is something people don't stop publishing comic books once they told the first story. And I think that something like this probably has the same fundamental nature at the end of the day. Led Zeppelin came out with four albums all called Led Zeppelin, so they kept putting it out. Similarly, a Banner album remix is being put out on Kickstarter as we speak. Coming soon. I Yes, coming soon. That should be end of May and into June. The exact firm dates exist on a spreadsheet because Burt's have spreadsheets for these kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, they do. Uh, yeah, they but, do. But committing to them in public brings back the fears, Ken. The fears of the one thing that went wrong. That one time you reached down into the garbage disposal to get your diamond necklace and then you were banned from St. Louis forever. The thing to do is to monitor banderalbum.com because that will point at the Kickstarter when it's running. Well, as, as long as we have a, a sound algorithm and a place to monitor, I feel like we're left in good hands. So let's leave this completely unself-interested interview with Jeff Tidball behind and head into a horrible commercial advertisement. The Best of Ask Figeln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. This podcast would never betray you for cheap shock value, so join the following in having its back. Jacob Ansari. Jamie Twine. Randy Ship, Ryan Lassiter. And Tenant Reed. The clanking of chains. The spooky faces in the window. And the raven sitting on the pallid bust of Pallas over the doorway welcome us once more into the horror hut. And here, our horror hut is much bedight, not just with said raven, but also pits, 
pendulums, maybe a maelstrom or two. Who can say what there is? Because beloved Patreon backer Timothy Coram writes to tell us that he's been rereading Poe lately, and there are a lot of resonances with Chambers horror works. I was wondering if you gentlemen could discuss how to use Poe in a Yellow King game, whether incorporating elements of Poe, whether as further manifestations of Carcosa, a crimson mass competitor to the Yellow King, or as the sole focus of a highly variant campaign. Uh, Robin, you must have had Poe thoughts while writing Yellow King. I can't believe you didn't. Why don't you un unlimber some of those thoughts for the help of Timothy Corum and all the ships at sea? Right. Well, first of all, if you're playing a gumshoe game where there there is a mystery and the characters use deductive reasoning and legwork to uh, unravel that mystery. In fact, if you're playing a game where gumshoe characters are investigators, you're already doing Edgar Allan Poe because, of course, he, with his character Auguste Dupin and the three short stories he appears in, invented the investigative detective genre. You can argue that certain earlier characters like Oedipus and Hamlet are investigators who do investigating, but the investigation as we know it and as it appears in essentially every gumshoe game, even the ones where people are wearing fancy space hats, owes a debt to Poe. That said, uh, yes, absolutely, there's lots of chambers that draws on Poe. Uh, his number one literary influence is clearly Ambrose Bierce, Guy de Maupassant, second uh, after that, and then, but also clearly Poe, right? That there wouldn't be the uh, short story horror format in America without Poe, who is foundational uh, to it. So you can uh, take off on that in all sorts of ways. One interesting thing I think about Poe is that you can have him extant in the world of the characters without having the weird meta thing that you would get if they bump into Robert Chambers. So his works could be known, people could refer to them. And so, for example, uh, if you're puzzling over, well, how do I do the cask of Amontillado in The Yellow King Paris? Well, somebody has read the story and they've read The Yellow King and they're uh, going to uh, put that into action. So you could have something where literally someone has is doing a series of copycat crimes based on the uh, uh, works of Poe which then allows you to add sort of an investigative element to his horror stories, which are inherently less investigative in nature. Yeah, the notion of, you know, stuff coming off the page of reality uh, shifting around you. Poe, of course, has all that happen to the narrator, not to the world. Uh, the, the sort of the, the piece of chambers that us moderns, uh, Robin specifically modern among them, have pulled out is the notion that the world is shifting around Chambers's narrators, not that the narrators themselves are shifting. And it is that sort of twist going back around that you can uh, use as sort of an engine for the horror so that in a sort of a uh, way that characters in Yellow King are caught up in the world and the art of the play, you could imagine either another character who has been caught up in the world and art of Poe, Baudelaire, of course, another uh, foundational creator of the French uh, decadent movement, was a gigantic Poe uh, maven. Baudelaire wrote, you know, poems that are suppressed and, and lots of other sort of proto-Yellow Kingy type uh, behavior. And so a Baudelaire cult that is worshiping Poe and attempting to do with Poe 
what uh, the author of the Yellow King play has art has done. You could have the Poe cult as a precursor to that in France, and that their half successes and close uh, failures are still littering the psychic landscape. So there may be, you know, they summoned up a, an orangutan tulpa that runs around and murders people. Who can say what kind of activities or possibly, as Timothy Quorum suggests, the Red Death has taken on a masked shape, perhaps summoned again by the backwash of Carcosa, which is sort of latching onto things in masks. So it's not just the King and the Golden Mask from Marcel Schwab, it's also the Mask of the Red Death uh, from Poe, and even the notion of the double uh, from William Wilson, that you can have uh, things like that, or the Man in the Crowd, who's another figure that appears in uh, Chambers via Poe, and uh, you can have all manner of, of creepy Poe villains and monsters uh, that sort of show up in that universe. You could even stretch chronology just a tiny bit to have Auguste Dupin show up as a very, very elderly uh, man who can't go around uh, investigating and uh, looking for clues and who has caught on to the uh, conspiracy who could therefore act as a patron for the characters and uh, point them in different directions and, and head them along. And uh, you could assist the stretching of the timeline a little because the stories are written in 1840 so it's like that makes him very old you could say that you know he's had a little bit of magical amontillado which means that he's uh you know as spry as a 90 year old instead of uh, 110 or whatever he would realistically mm -hmm. be another uh right question you may be asking yourself is that a lot of post stories are not in the then contemporary world but are set in in a sort of non-specific hazy gothic renaissance era how do you get stuff like the pit and the pendulum or tomb of lygia uh going and the answer to that is that well it seems like the sorts of things that are going on in that set of poe stories sound a lot like what's going on in carcosa in the play the king in yellow uh with uh, decadent nobles and uh, surprises and that sort of thing that's the most poe-like thing is those tiny little snatches and hints of what's in the play. So indeed you might have, you know, your visit to Carcosa, perhaps making that less dangerous or temporarily safer than it is portrayed as being in the game, uh, is when you go and meet your uh, decadent nobles and, uh, there's a masked ball and, uh, all of the, the rest of that action goes with it. It makes, uh, you know, you can certainly have your torture chambers in 1895. You can have a, uh, fancy dress, party where everybody is in renaissance garb uh, but you can also have uh, stuff like that happening uh, in carcosa or you can intimate that poe was receiving emanations of events that had happened in carcosa and you're figuring out uh, what really went on in the king's family that is echoed in those stories you can also tie certain of these elements into poe's life um, Poe, of course, famously died mysteriously in 1849, vanished from the sight of his friends and loved ones, and turned up um, literally dead drunk in Baltimore, died talking about a mysterious Mr. Reynolds, who may or may not have been Josiah Reynolds, the man who explored the hollow earth for America. Um, he left his last story, The Lighthouse, which is about a lighthouse on the shore of an unknown sea sounds sort of carcosa towery to me and you can certainly you know have either the the manuscript of the lighthouse turns up and sure enough it's about carcosa or you can have any number of other 
a sort of Poe knock-on effect. You can have a scholar of Poe who is trying to track down Poe ramifications and discovers that, in fact, Poe was, as you say, tapping into Carcosa. There's a terrific novel called Usher's Passing that just assumes that the entire point of Follow the House of Usher, that there are no more ushers, is wrong. And so it tells uh, as a fun Southern Gothic about the scions of the House of Usher, which might be something that you want to uh, bring into the present day or into the 1895 or even into the one of the other uh, present day settings. And obviously, you also have uh, the possibility that the ushers are the other royal house of Carcosa, that Casilda and Camilla overthrew the ushers and that they are the the fallen uh, lords of Carcosa. And so they might have, you know, vengeance on uh, and, and be a way for the player characters to access uh, the eldritch power of um, uh, literary reality horror and use it against uh, the sisters who are otherwise unstoppable because there's nothing humans can do against them. Right. And the convention of the uh, deuced peculiar thing allows uh, you, the player to introduce some Poe into the world, even if the GM is not planning to do that. So uh, that can be anything from I am perpetually haunted by a a mysterious, annoying raven to I have terrible dreams in which I uh, murdered someone and hear their heart uh, beating from uh, beneath the floorboards. Or one of the premises of this is that you are a wealthy American family. It's like, well, your last name could be Usher. Why not? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you can uh, put that all in play yourself or, you know, for that matter, uh, you know, this watch chain that my father gave me, uh, legend has it that it belonged to Edgar Allan Poe. And uh, sometimes when I look in the mirror, I, I think I see Poe himself uh, standing over me and uh, he's looking very longingly, in fact, at all of this absinthe that we have arrayed uh, before us. And uh, oh, wait a minute, in the mirror, I see the absinthe going lower and lower in the glass and uh we all know that something weird will happen after that. So uh, you can uh, throw that in on a, on a player level as well. Yes. We should also plug uh, Nathan Pauletta's uh, superb Edgar Allan Poe themed game of horror and investigation and personal demons, uh, Imper the Perverse, which is terrific and fun and good. And anyone interested in poeing things up in any game should probably take a gander at that. Well, the rule is uh, when we uh, get to a plug, even a plug for someone else's fabulous, awesome game, it's time for us to exit this segment before we get bricked up in a wall. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them 
deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing it's time once more to uh, venture in to the most ill-defined of all of the huts that we have in a vast collection of huts uh, the one where we look out the window, there's an alien big cat screaming out in the moor. We look over in the corner, and there are the uh, gray alien and the Nordic alien. But this time around, they're ignoring their kombucha because they've got their phones out and they're looking at TikTok. Because, Ken, we are going to delve into one of several, it turns out, modern occult conspiracies or uh, Looney Tunes ideas that are uh, currently getting traction on TikTok. I guess the most absurd and mystical of all being uh, it's a good time to buy Bitcoin. (laughs) That's not a pyramid scheme at all. And this one is people have been tricked by their own desire for the good and perfect life, Ken, to buy a particular sort of crystal. And as we all know, crystals fix your life, except this one fixes your life and then it fixes your life. Ken, tell us about Moldavite and why it is suddenly all the rage on TikTok. I will tell you about Moldavite. Um, TikTok, as you allude, is a hotbed. It's where the kids are now. The kids and the Chinese intelligence services. So, kids, don't TikTok yes. in front of and Area 51. the only intelligence service on TikTok, so don't right. be worried. Well, it's the one that has root access. Let's put it that way. So, the, uh, the, the kids are on the TikToks and they're having fun and doing their little dances and whatever else kids do. But a big chunk of TikTok is taken up by what is often called witch talk, which is kids sharing folklore and occult practices, just as kids have done literally for all time. Now they're just doing it in a fun telephony way. So, among the things that are going on on Witch Talk, obviously astrology, huge on TikTok. TikTok has its own Kabbalah called the Grabavoy Codes, which if everyone is very good, we will come back and talk about later. Uh, but in this case, this is TikTok alchemy or TikTok crystallography, depending on which side of the universe you're on. TikTok Agrippa, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa is on TikTok in this case, because kids are all het up about Moldavite. And Moldavite, just to back this briefly onto the shores of actual science, is a tektite, which is to say it is fused glass created by meteoric impact. Technically, meteoritic impact, obviously, because that's literally the point of meteorites. But anyway, uh, this specific impact happened about 14.7 million years ago in southern Germany at what is now known as the Nordlinger Ries Crater. The asteroid or meteor or comet or whatever it was plammed into southern Germany and sprayed fused green glass all over uh, what turned into eventually southern Bohemia. And this uh, cool glass, which you can look at, has occlusions and inclusions in it. Some of it has got little fern patterns or other striations because of the uh, way that the uh, the shock waves froze the silicon. There's approximately 275 tons of it around the world. It was used as cheap ornamental jewelry back in the day, although uh, there are some people who will tell you that it was uh, even then when it was just glass you found in the rubble used in royal ornaments. I have not found a single royal ornament from that era. I've seen a lot of cool decorative jewelry from the 18th and 19th century with Moldavite in it. I should probably mention at this juncture that Wolfram of Eschenbach in Parseval describes the Holy Grail as a green stone fallen from heaven. So there are people who say, the Holy Grail is made of Moldavite. 
I don't know if they're saying that on TikTok because again, TikTok, but there are at least 325 million views on TikTok on the subject Moldavite. Well, well, certainly the grail is a case of very powerful, beneficial magic that did, you know, have a, a, a bad effect for at least one person involved. One could argue many people involved, but in, in that case, it was looking for the grail that caused the problem, not actually achieving the grail. And you can achieve Moldavite by sending $40 to Etsy and they will send you a Moldavite bracelet or a, or a pendant or whatever. And the goal, as with all the crystals, is to have the crystal in your possession, have it generally touch your, uh, your skin, but sometimes you can just meditate on it or put it on your crystal shelf or listen to it or whatever. And then that crystal, as we've talked about in a previous segment, will focus the energy of the universe and broadcast that energy into you. So it's a very sort of post-radio understanding of uh, magic, which is one of the wonderful, lovely things about magic is it doesn't just stand still. So the, the Moldavite, because it is uh, from a meteor and because it is pretty and because it is slightly harder to get than other kinds of stone, there's maybe 10 years of supply of museum class Moldavite left in the world. And it's all in one mine in Czechoslovakia. And that was now. 10 years before it blew up on TikTok. Right. Yeah. So who knows now? They may be just mining it all. But the Moldavite, it's an obstacle erasing crystal. It will take whatever you think is your problem out of your life. And the trouble is that it apparently does so without any particular interest in your opinion on the topic. There is a quote that I loved from uh, Jessica Jackson, who is the owner of Valley Crystals, and so obviously is a bigger expert on this than me. Uh, she says, let's assume someone obtaining Moldavite is using it for the reason that has been trending on TikTok. It will transform your entire life and remove all toxicity or blockages. But it does that without your consent. If you're grabbing Moldavite with the expectation that it will do these things, this is an intention that you've now set for your Moldavite, even if unknowingly. So Jessica is saying to an extent that you are creating your own Moldavite crisis. And on the TikTok, the kids go on TikTok and they say, I bought Moldavite. I got a Moldavite and my parents were in a car crash. Or I got Moldavite and my boyfriend broke up with me. Or I got Moldavite and I broke my leg. And it, it's just sort of this upwelling of kids. It's not bragging. It's cry bragging, I guess, about uh, how awful their lives are now that they've invited Moldavite into them as a testimony to the power of Moldavite. So it's not stay away from Moldavite. It's if you get Moldavite, handle it more carefully than I did. It's it's a very, I want to say, Protestant evangelical uh, sort of an approach to the Moldavite. It's like, oh, I'm but a Moldavite ruined sinner, but the Moldavite's not to blame. It's me. I bought all these monkey's paws <laughs> on Etsy. <laughs> and it turned yeah, out. Maybe I should have stopped at the vervet monkey paw, but I went on to the macaque and, uh, and the marmoset. And it seems like it's a bit much. Yeah, things keep going wrong. So there is this notion that um, you have, we older Generation X type magicians think that if you have a cursed item, your job is to get rid of it or to, you know, worst case scenario, make someone else's kid watch it so that your kid stays alive. Nope. In the new, the new era, tell everyone about the curse and how badly it's treated you and have competitions, you know? Oh, well, yeah, sure. Marnie may just have uh, broken a leg. I was, you know, diagnosed with leukemia as a result of my Moldavite and a somewhat mean spirited article in vice magazine says that maybe the kids are making it up. I think that we don't know that. 
I think that certainly it is known that when people have bad things happen in their life, they look around for something else to blame. And in this case, the Moldavite is sitting right there on their on their crystal shelf or hanging on their uh, on their necklace. Are, are you suggesting, Ken, that people find a narrative from the random disorder of their lives? If you have to, you'll you'll rope a stone into it. I'm suggesting that often. Often that happens, yeah. I, I guess this is a, the solution to one of the classic problems in uh, role playing is getting uh, characters to hold on to their cursed items long enough to have cursed item stories once they realize that their item is cursed. Because, uh, like rational actors, player characters will then try to get rid of the stuff. But if they know that, uh, you know, keeping their minus two sword or that ring that makes you invisible and whispers in your ear uh, lets you blow up on social media. If it turns you into an influencer, it's like, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll keep this a little longer. Maybe the rest of the family members who have misadventures will be the ones I don't like. This is a, and, and, and indeed, if there is any sort of motivation or uh, uh, intelligence behind the force that is behind the Moldavite, uh, maybe that is part of the deal is that once you get it, it's like, like many other ways of harming yourself, it's somewhat addictive and warning other people against it, of course is the number one thing you would do if you want other teenagers to acquire it. Right. And as Jessica Jackson points out, a lot of times these horrible things happen, but because I broke my hip, I met a cute internist and now we're dating. Or, yeah, my parents uh, were in that car wreck, but they were jerks and I didn't like them or whatever. And so uh, the Moldavite is in this formulation, not necessarily cursed. It's just an enthusiastic, self-interested actor. It's more like Stormbringer. Right. It it shows up. It's like, well, we're going to make Elric king of the world, starting by killing everyone who's keeping him from being king of the world. Those loser friends and relatives of his. That's what Moldavite is up to. Right. If, if Jessica Jackson is right. And again, she knows more about it than I do. I, I think that this sort of unfocused Tulpa energy that, uh, that the teens have that in uh, a, a more decorous era would have made poltergeists is now just being focused through the Moldavite and lashing out and creating all manner of sort of uh, final destination-esque adventures that rather than leading them to uh, climb onto a haunted airplane, lead them instead to meet a, a cute girl that they've had their eye on or actually get into a good college because now they have a trauma story that they can write about in their personal essay or whatever it is. The, the Moldavite <laughs> doesn't care. The Moldavite's just heading for the finish line and dragging you along with it. Yes, although I think Moldavite on your application essay was, was very 2017. <laughs> well, I mean, in a state school, sure, you can still get in with Moldavite. Obviously, you know, the Ivies are now expecting um, uh, Libyan uh, desert glass, which is yeah. apparently what you get turned on to if you can't afford the Moldavite. And, and which school is it that has the fighting Moldavites? The fighting Moldavites. I believe that's uh, Alabama State, right? Right. And it, it also sounds like in, in this case, what Moldavite is doing is actually just moving your luck around. It could also be that you have a background level of luck, everybody does, and that in order for something very lucky to happen to you, something very unlucky also has to happen to you. So, and again, it's doing so in a somewhat uh, random fashion. This is the Liptony Hut, so I guess we could envision that the source of this is pseudoscientific, or uh, perhaps the aliens are playing a long game and they shot a meteor at us so that by the time their spaceships arrive, there'll be a bunch of sort of addled people around who've had their chakras all maladjusted by uh, by Moldavite and then can be easily influenced or possessed. Perhaps these are the kind of aliens whose ships show up in the atmosphere and then they, instead of landing, uh, which is 
inconvenient uh, and tiresome. Uh, they then filter into the bodies of everybody who's uh, wearing Moldavite or has had their luck altered. But could be that all these small disasters people are having are just precursors to the e- even bigger disaster of being possessed by aliens. Well, uh, but the Moldavite is like being one with a star child is the best thing that can happen. The fact that the rest of the world is going to be left a ruined cinder is not really my problem. I'm Your moldified. number one obstacle is you don't have an alien in you. Right. You can also, of course, if you're talking about um, green rocks that maybe hold alien possession, this might be the time if you're playing uh, a Cthulhu game to consider that maybe this is all Loigor stones from the great uh, Colin Wilson story, Return of the Loigor, that uh, these uh, immaterial entities that transform and disrupt your, your luck and your life that Moldavite is just uh, the pieces of a Loigor that fell on the earth 15 million years ago and uh, is still floating around today. Now, I have to say, as, as I guess something of a footnote before we uh, exit this segment and thus uh, this episode, that while I was researching this, I was struck by how I kind of want Google to be a bit more of a fun ruiner because when you look this up and you know that feature where it you know, shows you the commonly asked questions about whatever you've searched and you can click and get a drop-down menu and it'll give you an explanation. It's like all of it gave you a completely po-faced explanation of the magical properties of Moldavite without any hint of a skeptical note. Obviously, it's just based on what information people search for and uh, what nonsense they want to have reflected back at them. But there is a something of an inherent authority in what Google decides to present to you in the same format that in other places it will give you facts. And that might also be further evidence of uh, the idea that the uh, internet itself is part of a, a great occult uh, working meant to bring down the final underpinnings of rationalism. Perhaps rationalism itself is one of the obstacles that uh, both Moldavite and Google want to uh, get rid of in order that we may be uh, happier. If by happier, we mean believe in whatever we want to believe. And uh, crying about it on TikTok. Well, there's nothing better to have a mystical worldview that victimizes you, right? That <laughs> gives you both a mystical world and uh, something to complain about. And, and, uh, and an excuse. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some people who don't have enough of that in their regular lives and, and need a green rock to do it for them. Well, you know, if if, if they can get the, the satisfaction that comes from complaining uh, for only $40 and they only do it on TikTok, as social outcomes go, we've seen worse. Right. That's all I'll say. Uh, well, this year podcast has got to uh, end for another week. I'll point out that it, this podcast is only $40 if you want it to be. And it will probably not break your hip. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is our this is our pledge to you. Most of our episodes will not break your hip. Yes. Uh, and certainly this episode probably won't break your hip. And I'm going to guess that the next week's episode also not going to break your hip. There you go. I, I defy you to find another podcast that has that as their almost pledge. Our implicit promise. Exactly. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Prolograin Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. Impro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Catch your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast evermore, not nevermore, by joining beloved Patreon backers. Alan McSager. Benjamin Rawls. John W.S. Marvin. Mark Alley. 
Giuliani. And Scott Jones. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Remind your group of the number one rule of role-playing in our latest design, Never Forget the Snacks. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>